on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the 9th day of July, 2019. I do like to remind you that I am the editor of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and we're focused primarily on the junior mining sector, exploration stocks, probably 90% of the stocks that I cover. And there's some really exciting things going on these days. Uh, a few of those companies that I follow are, uh, are sponsors to this show, and we'll be talking to one in a little while, StrikePoint Gold, Sean Kuhn-Kuhn will be with me. As, as will today, also, uh, we'll also have with me Alistair McLeod and uh, Michael Oliver. Uh, I should also mention that uh, Chen Lin is uh, vacationing for about a month and a half or so in Asia with his family. Uh, he'll be visiting, actually, a Noble Resources Project in Western Australia, and we look forward to talking to Chen when he comes back about that. Um, and he uh, also is plugged in very well to his friends and his connections in China, which we'll also want to ask Chen about when he comes back. Uh, if you don't want to wait for Chen on the radio show, you might... Consider subscribing to his newsletter. Uh, Chen, uh, you can go to chenpicks.com. The uh, letter is, what is Chen buying? What is Chen selling? Has had a stellar record, especially in the biotech space, but also with energy and also with gold and silver mining stocks. So what is Chen buying? What is Chen selling? Chenpicks.com. My letter, you can go to miningstocks.com to subscribe uh, to that. Um, uh, J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stock, or you can call our office here in New York City, 718-457-1426, 718-457-1426. Of course, we want to thank you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors this week are Klondike Gold, Novo Resources, RN Resources, StrikePoint Gold, and Radisson Mining Resources. I've titled today's show, The Impact of Financial Wars on Gold. Alistair McLeod uh, uh, will be with us. Sean Kuhn-Kuhn, as I just noted, and Michael Oliver is with me. We'll be talking to him in just a few seconds. The financial war between America and China is escalating dangerously into a war to secure global financial resources. At a time of growing liquidation of dollar assets by foreigners, the U.S. Treasury's internal analysis will highlight future government funding problems in light of a developing U.S. recession. That will result in an over-dependency on inflationary financing threatening to destabilize the dollar's purchasing power. For these reasons, America needs foreigners to buy its treasuries at a time when China also needs to sell them to help finance her infrastructure plans and future development. 
and uh, Alistair McLeod will be with us in the second half of today's show to focus on those topics uh, and also how they connect to our markets in general. And right after our first commercial break, Sean Kuhn-Kuhn will be with me uh, to give us an update on StrikePoint Gold's hunt for gold in British Columbia's Golden Triangle, and he has some some very important relationships that he's developed with other more advanced companies in that part of British Columbia, and we'll ask uh, Sean to elaborate on those uh, when we talk to him right after our first commercial break, but right now Michael Oliver is with me once again, and... Uh, it's OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com. Go there and check out Michael's work. Um, I think um, if you are a serious investor, you want to consider subscribing to his newsletter. Thank you for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. It is always good to have you every week, almost every week. We thank you so much for making yourself available uh, because I find your work to be so helpful, and I, I know a lot of our listeners do as well. Uh, gold has finally broken through that key resistance level of 1360. What should we look for next, and what might that mean for the markets in general? Well, uh, one thing that MSA does is we don't just look at one market. Like, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people who are yeah. into gold are into gold. <laughs> okay, and that's yeah. they're very focused on gold or silver and so forth. And you, you need to look out all the time. And, and this is also true with stock investors who are, you know possessed of the idea you have to always be long the stock market. Yeah. Um, so, and they, they're just looking at, oh, a new high, you know, it's, it's glorious, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Look out the side mirrors and look out the rear view mirror, not just the windshield, because the, what, what other markets are doing is often important and telling. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we've seen, not just the gold surge, which indicates a rush of new money into the gold market after we took out a, a very obvious price chart trend line that goes across the highs of the last four or five years, namely going through that 1350, 1360 level. And of course, that created a surge, no surprise. Uh, and we're, we're holding steady around 1400 right now. <clears throat> and uh, we think it's going a lot higher, but uh, we've got our eyes set on uh, the possibility of 1520 area as a possible midpoint congestion zone on, en route mm-hmm. to something up into 1700s which mm-hmm. we think this move will produce a move to that level. And mm-hmm. That's not the end of the entire move, but that's just the, the big leg that we think has begun. But mm-hmm. look out at the side mirrors, and you still see the investor asset class preference shift toward T-bonds, T-notes, uh, and, and therefore creating lower rates uh, in the process. Uh, that, that may not last uh, a long time, but right now that is definitely clear trend, and it's indicating that somebody doesn't quite believe in the stock market, because they're shifting assets into T-bonds and T-notes and other government instruments around the world. Uh, Gold has obviously benefited lately. Uh, Gold miners have suddenly uh, grown a backbone. Uh, The GDX price action has gone from the totally dormant, non-volatile to uh, electrified. Uh, Mm -hmm. Just look at a chart, price chart of, of GDX over the last several months. And you'll see uh, what most people would believe is unbelievable. Uh, it mm-hmm. came from total doldrums to uh, with gaps and everything on the upside, and it's run from twenty buck area up to uh, twenty six. Mm-hmm. And we think the GDX is probably headed for a challenge of the two thousand sixteen highs, which were thirty one ninety. So we think that's part of. The, we're basically probably in a midpoint congestion in GDX and mm-hmm. out to that level, but. The GDX has definitely swung from uh, par to underperform versus gold to an outperformer. 
uh, and we think that trend shift, which occurred in the last month, is the beginning of a major ongoing trend shift favoring gold miners over gold. What would that indicate? It indicates to us that there are a lot of asset managers and investors around the world who, while uh, appreciating what gold has done, don't want to buy gold. They want to own the miners. Mm-hmm. Therefore, that is an indication of the investor preference shift out of the side mirror again. You're looking mm-hmm. at relative performance of miners versus gold. Uh, the dollar is confusing to most people. Uh, they see, they think is a firm dollar. Well, it's it, firm is is a <laughs> overdoing it a bit. Uh, it's sideways. Uh, since August of last year, the dollar ran up. Dollar index ran up to 97 in price. And if you draw a line across August high of last year, so what are we talking? Uh, you know, you know, a lot of months. Uh, you're trading around 97 now. So right. it's twisted and turned either side of that level, uh, teasing both sides. Uh, we think the big move is down. We think it began in 2016, 17, early, when we came from a high at 103 dollars and 40 cents, uh, and now we're laboring in the upper 97s. Mm-hmm. Uh, Counter trend rally is what, what we call it. We think it'll resume the downside. But take it into context, if you waited for dollar weakness to buy gold, remember August of last year, gold was at 1160 plus. Mm-hmm. Dollar index was 97. Well, the dollar's still at 97, but gold's at 1400. Yeah. If you're waiting on the dollar to give you approval to buy gold, it was, uh, you, you, you've misled yourself. Yeah. Uh, we think it'll be I, I... A, a late signal. Uh, I would say so much, uh, so much for the idea of a stable dollar. It certainly doesn't buy very, nearly as much gold as it did uh, a right. year ago. So <laughs> it does not. Uh, and other currencies, of course, throughout the world, the gold is even worse. Rampaging against them. Yeah. Uh, so the, the side so mirrors my, all indicate that something's wrong with the stock market, and I think that's what's going to help gold the most mm-hmm. in the coming months is the, the decay rollover in the stock market, uh, right. the U.S. stock market in particular. Right. Well, Michael, I understand that you're you're turning pretty bullish on the whole commodity complex again, not as selectively. You see gold leading the charge, I guess, right? This is, a, I think it's an overlay of what happened between 1976 and 1980. Gold made a low in 76, started to turn up into 77, and commodities were about a year behind it. And gold led all the way up to the 1980 high, but the whole commodity complex exploded. And what was the world environment then? Uh, stagnation, uh-huh. you know, p- pathetic economic numbers. Uh, the stock market itself was a loser's place to be for nearly a decade, certainly during yep. those years. Uh, and the commodities, basically, you name the commodity, and it was vertical. Uh, but yep. it was led by gold, and it, all during the move, gold still outperformed the commodity complex. But right now what we've got is in the early part of the first part of the recovery in commodities from the 2016 low, crude oil and copper performed very well. But then they topped and they've collapsed back down, not to new lows, but sharply declined from the recovery highs. So they were both a positive and then a negative contributor to, like, the Bloomberg Commodity Index. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the grains were dormant all during 2016 through 2018 in a, in a low price level range. Mm-hmm. But now the grains have resurrected themselves by our metrics. Uh, soybeans, a bit of a laggard, but corn and wheat clearly have. Sugar, coffee, and cocoa are looking good soft commodities, which few people look at. Uh, The meats are firmed. And we think that the copper and the gold negative implications are basically dissipated at this point. We think they're trying to bottom for a next up move, at which point they will contribute also 
a more uniform contribution to the commodity complex because you'll mm-hmm. have grains going up, you'll have copper and crude oil turning back around and headed back up. We think that's something to look for in the next several months, not, not necessarily right now. But mm-hmm. the point being that if gold's leading a charge, that we need to see the troops organizing below it, mm-hmm. the commodity complex and all of its sectors, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. turning upward in, in unison, not in segments which is uh-huh. the way they were in 2016 through 18. So we think All we're right. seeing that evidence of that now. In which case, right. uh, you could make the case uh, welcome to 1977. Oh, well, I don't know. I, I don't. That was a pretty uh, unnerving time frame, as I remember, but that's when I got interested in gold shares. I have to tell you that, because I saw these little penny stocks go absolutely bananas to the upside. So, uh, oh, yeah. you know, it's an exciting Several time. Years. It's not necessarily the best of times in terms of stability and all that. But anyway, it is what it is, Michael. And we're so thankful that you come on to help us realize what it is. So thank you so much for being with us again. Thank you, always great, Always great to have you. Well, folks, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away. Sean Kunkun will be with us. He's the president of Strike Point Gold, one of our sponsors. It's a company that I follow in my newsletter. And it's also a company I think has a real interesting potential going forward as it explores for gold in the British Columbia's Golden Triangle. We'll be right back with Sean Kunku. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Karatha region of Western Australia, where they are currently drilling and trenching their Purdy's reward project. In addition, Nobo has partnered with Sumitomo Mining Corporation to advance its Beaton's Creek Gold Project toward production. With over $70 million in cash and strong shareholder support from the likes of Kirkland Lake Gold, Nobo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Strike Point Gold, trading under SKP on the TSX and STKXF on the OTC, has a market cap of under $10 million. Strike Point is a new player in the Golden Triangle of BC and Canada. Focus will be on drilling the Willoughby Project in 2019. Prior drilling delivered over 20 meters of 25 grams per ton gold and 184 grams per ton silver. Recent receding glaciers have identified new gold targets. Neighboring projects have been acquired by Strike Point's largest shareholder, Ascot, Eric Sprott, and Skeena, round out the other top shareholders. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Our Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really ha- glad to have with me once again Sean Kuhn-Kuhn. He's the president of Strike Point Gold. Strike Point trades uh, in Canada under the symbol SKP. You can buy it down here in the United States under the symbol STKXF. STKXF. 88.6 million shares. It was trading earlier today at around 13 cents and 
Canadian money, that's 11.5 million market cap or 8.6 million in U.S. money. So as you can see, it's just a real baby company, but it's a company that has some properties in a very, a very prolific, gold prolific area of, uh, of British Columbia called the Golden Triangle. Uh, and I think it has a very exciting potential uh, going forward. So I'm really pleased to welcome Sean to the show again. Thanks for joining me, Sean. Thanks for having me, Jay. You know, um, you were with me once before, but for the benefit of people that might not have heard you, uh, talk a little bit about the mission, what your company's business model is, what you hope to achieve. Um, you know, you are an exploration company, but just talk a little bit about your properties and and what your um, what your goals are for this year, perhaps. Sure. Yeah. So. If, if we go back uh, to 2016, uh, 2016 marked uh, two significant <coughs> bottoms, uh, one in the U.S. dollar denominated gold price, the other on the TSX Venture Exchange, uh, the principal listing exchange for strike points. So as we put in those two bottoms back in 2016, uh, myself and uh, the board of directors that is, uh, that is strike point, uh, set out to acquire projects. Um, you know, we thought it was a, a great time, a compelling time for low valuations in the uh, precious metal space. Um, so what we've done in the last three years is we've acquired over 25 gold and silver properties focused in northwestern BC in the uh, renowned Golden Triangle area. Uh, area, which has got some of the highest grade gold deposits in the world. And uh, we've also uh, picked up a large portfolio of properties in the Yukon. And um, so we've spent the last three years acquiring. And also we've raised, uh, you know, in excess of $13 million um, for those acquisitions and also to explore and develop those properties. So my, my team is a group of professionals, that is, um, you know, mining engineers, exploration geologists, accounting, accountants, uh, capital markets professionals. And the one commonality, the one um, sort of common characteristics that we all have is we've, we've um, had a successful career at acquiring projects and moving them on to mid-tiers and majors. So we've got uh, several directors um, and technical advisors that make up StrikePoint that have made a career of uh, acquiring projects, uh, you know, in in the in the one to ten million dollar range, and moving them off for for hundreds of millions, and in some cases, uh, in, in excess of a billion dollars. Well, that's good. Uh, the track record is always very important, and of course, the uh, individual bios are available, I guess, on your website for people to go and check them out, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I, you know, I look at three simple things that makes a company successful. You know, you, you need management, um, you, you need the project, but you also need the ability to raise money. And I think what we've demonstrated in the last three years, uh, you know, a, a very, very tough time for small cap uh, junior explorers. We've, uh, we've executed, we've raised money, and we've acquired very relevant projects. And, and now it's a time to go out and add value to these projects. So we're really excited. Uh, we're focused on, on the Willoughby property. And um, we've got a, a new uh, technical advisory committee that we've just put together that's made up of uh, Rob McLeod and Ryan Waymark. And, uh, and Rob and Ryan have recently come, uh, come over from uh, IDM Mining that was uh, recently acquired by Ascot uh, Resources. 
um, and uh, they're helping us develop the, the Willoughby asset. Okay. Um, you know, one other thing, Sean, I, I would add another ingredient to a successful team, a successful exploration company, not only raising money, but who you raise the money with. And I notice as I look at your uh, the ownership of your company, first of all, management owns 12%. I always like to see that, skin in the game by the people that are aligned with my interests as, a, as an investor. But you also have Eric Sprott is there for 8%, Skeena has 8%, Ascot 12%. Um, and so it's only about 30% in the hands of retail, which I think means that you're, even though you have 88 million shares, first of all, if you have some discoveries here, this stock could go pretty rapidly, could rise north pretty rapidly, I would say. But also you want to know that you have people that will stick with and hold those shares uh, through uh, some difficult times if there are some. And you're not looking for someone that's going to make a quick buck uh, in and out of a stock. So. To me, that's a very important thing. I don't know if you'd want to comment on, on especially, uh, I think, Ascot and Skeena. Uh, do you see them as, as strategic holders of your shares? I, I do. But, you know, just, just generally speaking, like if you, if you break down that 88 million shares, we've got 70% in, in the hands of, uh, uh, you know, long-term oriented precious metals investors. And I think it is, it is meaningful. Uh, our largest shareholder is Ascot, and Ascot has spent uh, the last nine months, um, uh, you know, and they've, in that nine months, they've acquired uh, two of our neighbors. They've acquired um, uh, the, the Silver Coin property from Jaden Resources, and they've acquired Red Mountain from IDM Mining. So we, we seem to have uh, ourselves in an area where Ascot is looking to continue to be very active as they restart the Premier Mill and take uh, their, their, their flagship uh, Premier uh, deposit back into production. And with our assets, uh, Willoughby and Porter being in that vicinity, I think it's very, very strategic. But yeah, I, you know, I can't say enough the fact that a company uh, like StrikePoint with our valuation here uh, has, you know, the likes of Eric Sprott, um, Gold 2000, U.S. Global. We've got some of the best precious metals investors uh, under the sun as shareholders. So I think, you know, as we continue to go and, and grow and develop the company, we've got some very, very strong financial partners to help us uh, move these assets along. Sean, you just recently talked about a technical advisory committee. Can you talk about who is on that committee and what their mission is? Yeah, so so that committee is made up of, uh, of Rob McLeod and Ryan Waymark. Uh, so Rob is a uh, he is a, a geologist uh, who was recently the chief uh, executive officer of IDM. Um, IDM had recently uh, combined with Ascot Resources. Uh, Rob's from the Stewart uh, area. He was uh, born and raised in Stewart, and that's where Strike Point's properties are uh, are, are around. And uh, you know, Rob also um, was the VPX of Underworld. Um, which discovered the golden saddle deposit in the Yukon, drilled out 1.4 million ounces, and was acquired by Kinross for 140 million dollars. So Rob is uh, he's a very creative uh, exploration geologist, and um, he is going to be guiding uh, you know our exploration effort, efforts up in uh, on the Willoughby property. And then we've got a very very uh, energetic. Um, 
uh, engineer, a uh, young engineer in Ryan Waymark, who's got a lot of experience um, in, in this part of the world. And uh, again, as we look to advance this project and, and build resources and, and potentially, uh, you know, upon success, make uh, more development stage decisions, Ryan uh, w- will help us uh, go down that path. Specifically this year, Sean, what are your uh, exploration goals? So as we as we uh, move towards uh, a drill program at the latter part of this month on the Willoughby property, um, when we look at Willoughby, the previous exploration has demonstrated some exceptionally high-grade results. So just looking at some of the high-grade holes here, 350 um, grams per ton gold over three meters. Uh, that wow. included a 200-gram uh, silver kick as well. So there's several high-grade intercepts that that really stand out here. Um, although the property was – there was only two small areas of the property that were uh, explored, leaving an opportunity to increase the mineralization along trend at, at, at a long strike and at depth. So, um, you know, our goal here is we're going to be going into an eight-hole drill program, and that eight-hole drill program is going to be looking at uh, basically expanding the high-grade historic intercepts and uh, looking to um, some western extensions and some depth extensions. Also, something to note here, and again, I don't want to get too technical here, but Two years ago, there was a new geological interpretation that swept through the area that was um, essential and critical at some big discoveries at IDM. We believe that same uh, folding that's occurring at the adjacent Red Mountain deposit, the post-mineralization high-amplitude folding that led to multiple new discoveries at at, uh, the IDM project, we believe those new interpretations at Willoughby um, have the potential to lead to some significant discoveries. Wow, that's so we'll exciting! Be, we'll be looking to leverage, yeah, we'll be looking to leverage that new uh, those new interpretations with this new team. Sean, when uh, will the drill program get underway, and when might investors anticipate uh, some results? So we're looking to start drilling on the twenty seventh of July, and um, you know we're looking at a program in the first phase that should take us till about the eleventh or twelfth of August. Um, you know. It, we're looking at potentially having results just after Labor Day. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's a, really something to be looking forward to because uh, you'll be drilling, I guess, close to some of those high-grade yeah, results from the past, right? Yes. And, you know, when I look at the market, um, you know, it's, it's rewarded companies in the triangle for Discovery News. So, you know, if we go back two years to uh, uh, Garibaldi Resources that went from $0.07 cents to $6 or, or uh, GT Gold that went from $0.30 cents to $3 on, on some, some significant Discovery News, companies in the triangle have been rewarded. So, you know, it is a really, really exciting time for us as we launch into a, a drill program here. This is the first time this property has been drilled in 25 years, and I think with the recent uh, takeover activity and uh, new geological interpretations, the new team, you know, Strike Point is uh, is fully funded and, and ready to go. Uh, so it's a very this is this is what you live for in this business, no doubt about it. And you just raised a million and a half dollars, so that will take you through this uh, eight-hole program, Sean, and take you through to the end of the year. 
Well, yeah, for the first phase of the drill program is budgeted for about $800,000. So we're looking at some phase two options right now. And, um, you know, we'll be focused our drilling on the north north uh, part of the Willoughby property, the north zone. And then uh, we're just uh, working out some logistics for uh, a second phase at the Willoughby zone. Well, that's going to be uh, really exciting. I'm really going to be watching and, this. And just uh, Jay, yeah. Those two areas are over a kilometer apart. Okay. So, I mean, scale is something we always want to see, of course. Uh, you know, it's, it's fine and dandy to find a small deposit. Uh, it's hard to make money as, with a public company in a, with a small deposit. So, um, what, what can you tell us about what you know about the scale of your target? Targets. Well, what we, this is an extremely high-grade system. So... You know, unlike some 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 of the or the lower grade counterparts, we don't need a property that is, you know, you know the, the size of Texas. But uh-huh. what what Willoughby is demonstrating here is there's eight gold and silver mineralized zones that have been identified to date. There's about a kilometer of strike length um, that is that is demonstrating robust grades. So mm-hmm. you know, our key is to try to build up resources along that one kilometer trend to start with, and then mm-hmm. we can we can start building from there. Wow! All right. Well, it sounds like uh, something I'm going to want to keep my eyes peeled on, both for the newsletter and for my own account. So, uh, I want to thank you very much, Sean, for being with us, and uh, look forward to keeping up with this story going forward. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Jay. Thank you. You bet. Well, folks, uh, we're going to commercial break now, but don't go away because Alistair McLeod will be with us. Really some very interesting things to talk about. The financial war, as it escalates, what is that going to mean for precious metals and other markets? Um, Alistair always has some great insights, so I hope you'll stick around and listen to what he has to say. Oren Resources is a copper gold exploration company pursuing the world's next major discoveries. It has seven projects, including two active flagships, Committee Bay in northern Canada and Sombrero in southern Peru. This summer will be one of the most exciting times in Oren's history as the company turns the drill at Sombrero for the first time ever. The project's impressive surface results have identified Sombrero as an analog to one of Peru's biggest mines. Oren is also implementing cutting-edge machine learning technology to unlock its highly prospective gold belt at Committee Bay. Visit OrenResources.com and subscribe to keep up with the company's busy year ahead. A gold rush has begun. Recently, three of the largest gold mining companies announced strategic acquisitions in the Yukon territories. Ahead of them was a group who had already consolidated the key claims covering the historic Klondike gold rush into one company, aptly named Klondike Gold Corps. Led by a team of accomplished geoscientists, the company is steadily advancing exploration to reveal the rich source of all that gold. The hunt for the next major discovery is well underway, and Klondike Gold's shareholders are strategically positioned. Stay ahead of the majors and follow KlondikeGoldCorp.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening.
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times to Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really happy to have Alistair McLeod with me once again, backed by popular demand. And, and given the fact that I find his market insights so valuable to me personally, Alistair has been one of our most frequent guests. And he has worked as a stockbroker in the past, as a banker and economist, and he is currently a senior fellow at the Gold Money Foundation uh, and head of research at Gold Money. Thank you for joining me again, Alistair. That's my pleasure, Jay. You know, I'd, I'd like to tell our listeners before we go any further, they should go to goldmoney.com, goldmoney.com to catch up with, uh, with Alistair's weekly missives, uh, essays that he provides that I think are very thought-provoking and I think very correct in terms of his analysis of what is uh, really happening in the markets. The underlying dynamics that might not necessarily be talked about that much in the mainstream, perhaps partly because people just don't have the attention spans uh, to think through things, but Alistair's articles are very well written and easy to follow uh, if you uh, have an interest in the in really trying to understand why the markets are behaving the way they are. Alistair, I'd like to focus mostly today on your June 20th article titled, The Financial War Escalates. And in, uh, in the introduction to that article, you stated uh, the following. You said, and I quote, behind the scenes, the financial war between America and China is escalating dangerously into a war to secure global financial resources. So I'm wondering if you could give us some examples of rising conflicts that uh, uh, that are there to secure financial resources. Well, we've we've known that uh, there is a financial conflict between America and China for some time, and uh, a lot of the reason that China, I think, has been building um, not only its own gold reserves, and I don't mean the sort of £10 a month that they're adding at the moment, but the more serious, undeclared uh, bullion holdings that they have, which they've they've accumulated really between 1983 and the year 2002, but also the fact that they've encouraged their citizens uh, to uh, buy and invest in gold, and they've um, accumulated separately from that. I mean, I've seen estimates of about um, 16,000, 17,000 tons. So you can see that um, uh, the strategy from um, uh, China's end is to take a very different uh, view from America when it comes to fiat currencies. And uh, at some stage, uh, it is absolutely clear that uh, they will intend to be completely independent of the US dollar. Now, the loss of that um, international role for the US dollar for 40 to 50% of the world's population, I'm talking about the whole of Asia, basically, Mm -hmm. uh, is a very, very serious matter because um, the Americans use uh, the hegemonic status of the dollar uh, as um, the means of uh, financing their deficits. Um, The deficits are financed very, very much by foreigners buying dollars rather than U.S. citizens, um, uh, if you like, uh, saving and then putting money into U.S. treasuries. And um, the problem that we now have is that there is uh, an enormous slowdown in 
cross-border global trade. Um, now that has been so sharp and sudden. I think it's uh, the, you know the figures are still coming out on that, um, and uh, they they tend to surprise on the downside. As well as that, of course, it is affecting domestic production for many countries, including America. Mm -hmm. And the effect of that um, is that if you get a very severe economic downturn, which I have argued is going to happen because you've got a combination of uh, the end of the credit cycle and after the end of the credit cycle, you get a credit crisis. And on top of that, you have um, almost a a Smoot-Hawley Tariffs Act come credit cycle ending uh, twin, um, the other twin being 1929 to 32. Now, obviously, we hope that what happened then doesn't transpire this time, but I think there is a very serious danger that there is going to be a very substantial downturn in the global economy and also in the US economy. The effect of that is that the budget deficit in the United States will increase very substantially. Now, this gives the Americans a problem because the foreigners are no longer buying dollars. And the reason they're not buying dollars is quite simple, and that is they don't need them. They've already got an enormous quantity. I mean, if you look at the total of their investments in U.S. treasuries, um, uh, property, real estate, um, uh, uh, equities, corporations, that sort of stuff, plus their cash on deposit, which is around about $4.5 trillion, you're looking at a total of over $22 trillion, which mm. is roughly the GDP of the United States. So the, 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 you know, the, the myth that everybody has been talking about, there's a shortage of dollars and all the rest of it, is simply not true. There are too many dollars in foreign hands, and when things start going wrong, the foreigners start selling their foreign currencies. It's as simple as that. Not because mm -hmm. they don't like the dollar so necessarily, though I mm -hmm. would argue that people like China really don't like the dollar, mm -hmm. but principally they just don't need them and uh, they need to have their financial resources back at home, protecting their home base. So you mm -hmm. can see that in those economic conditions, um, you know, the sort of the flows that have been going out of every country um, because of the prospect of increased trade and all the rest of it start reversing. Now, at this time, um, as I said earlier, you will find that the budget deficit starts accelerating quite substantially, and you could easily be looking at revisions. I mean, I think the current year's budget deficit is expected to be around about a trillion dollars. Mm -hmm. um, in a full year, that's going to go up to over one and a half trillion dollars, um, and it's going to look like that for some time. So. What happens under those circumstances? Under those circumstances, uh, America has to do something to attract the portfolio flows back into the dollar. Mm -hmm. and, and it does that by trying to trash the, um, the regions where those flows go. And that brings us to China. China has this plan to invest an awful lot in her own infrastructure. And indeed, uh, throughout um, uh, the Asian continent with the Silk Roads and all the infrastructure that goes with that. So China needs to attract foreign currency through Hong Kong, through the Shanghai Connect Link, um, into China and also into the Asian, I can't remember what it's called now, the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank, yeah. which, they set up, which they set up in, in Shanghai. So um, China needs those funds. America needs those funds. That basically is the battle that we face. Mm -hmm. And, and it's not it's not going to be, you know, it, it is, I mean, it is a severe escalation of the situation. 
um, which we've had over the last three or four years. Uh, okay, so it's going to uh, something's got to give, and I want to get into some of the dynamics of, of what you talk about in your article that's, that's going on there. But uh, just as an aside, of course, Alistair, 2008-2009, there did seem to be a dollar shortage when the when the system went into a reverse when we had the financial crisis and. You know what happens when that ha- when when you have something like that going on, the margin clerk calls for the loans to be repaid. Everybody has to sell whatever they can, whatever is liquid enough to sell, and the dollar got stronger relative to other currencies during that time frame. Of course, once they started QE, it, it reversed. But uh, but but isn't there the prospect of that happening first, where you might see a collapse in prices and a stronger dollar? On a credit crisis, uh, what you say is true. There is a, a heavy degree of liquidation. But what you were describing was essentially a dollar shortage that was occurring in America. Um, what we're now looking at this time round is um, the foreigners have added a lot to their, their dollar investments and their mm-hmm. dollar cash. Um, and uh, I don't think they're quite in, in quite in the, in the same position to be squeezed, if you like, as mm-hmm. happened last time. I, I, think, I think the best way to look at it is, is um, uh, you have described exactly what was happening internally in America. Mm-hmm. Um, you had the U.S. banks trying to call in loans from American residents, American citizens, um, I'm sure on the margins there were foreign borrowers, borrowers of dollars um, in the same situation, but that was not the basic problem. The basic problem was in America. Um, I think um, it's, it's uh, people who talk about this a lot uh, seem to think that Turkey, for example, um, can only borrow in dollars because their own currency is rubbish um, and nobody will, will go and buy Turkish lira in order to, in, to lend money to the government. So um, when you get um, a problem with the Turkish lira, then obviously people start talking about, well, you know, they owe an awful lot of money in dollars. It's going to cost them more lira to get those dollars back and so on and so forth. Now, that is the sort of crisis that you can get. And that is part of the strategy. And this is from the Chinese point of view rather than my point of view. But the way the Chinese look at it, and they've observed these cycles going all the way back to uh, the Latin American crisis in the 1970s and the late 1970s. They have seen basically it's a sort of, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, buy, puff up everything and then dump it type strategy. And basically, there comes a point where America wants all that money back for her own purposes. And what she does is she will crash another economy. And the the example of the Latin American economies, I mean, they all crashed at more or less the same time. Southeast Asia, again, all crashed um, uh, in 1998, 97, 98, I think it was. And why? It was because money was going back into the dollars. Now, we all assume as observers that that money going back into dollars was basically money uh, which, um, for various reasons, had uh, become too speculatively involved in, um, uh, let's say, the, the Latin American com- uh, countries or, indeed, Southeast Asia. Um, but the way the Chinese look at it is, basically, that's not quite it. What happens is the Americans pull the rug out from under mm-hmm. and cause the flight to go back into the dollar because they need the investment resources uh, to fund their budget deficits. Now, it's an interesting point of view, and um, I can't argue too strongly against it. I I don't unreservedly accept it. But 
The point is that is what the Chinese think, and this is why we should pay attention to it. It was something that um, uh, their chief military strategist came up with, and mm -hmm. um, uh, he informed the Chinese uh, uh, leadership and uh, the army exactly what these tactics are. So mm -hmm. that is what they expect. That is what they see. So they are on high alert to protect themselves. And from their point of view, they see the um, uh, the riots, well, riots, the demonstrations in Hong Kong. In Hong Kong. Uh -huh. as being, as being um, uh, the initiative, if you like, of the American intelligence uh, services. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they want to stop um, the Chinese Connect working. They want, um, uh, if you like, international portfolios to take their money out of China and redirect it at America. That is the Chinese's suspicion. And mm -hmm. so we have to pay attention to how they think about this particular matter. Mm -hmm. Well, if we look, Alistair, whenever there is a war or a crisis or whatever countries are, uh, you know, when there's risk involved in investing in a certain area, if you can create chaos in that market in those countries, then the, the capital that's there is looking for a safe haven. They're looking for a place to get out. And what is more liquid, what is more solid, it seems, among all the fiat currencies of the world and the U.S. dollar, right? So it makes some sense. Um, maybe, maybe that's what's going on in Iran, perhaps, as well? Well, um, I, I think that is certainly a possibility because, um, you know, they, they, they stir the pot in Iran, as it were, which, again, uh, puts people off putting money into, say, infrastructure in Saudi Arabia um, or uh, helping to rebuild some of the nations that, uh, the you know, the NATO allies have destroyed, like Iraq, like Afghanistan. Now, Afghanistan is another interesting one because, of course, you've got enormous untapped resources so there's an extra reason why um, we all want to stay in Afghanistan, and that is to keep the Chinese out of <laughs> out of Afghanistan yeah. mm -hmm. uh, and getting hold of, of all that wonderful gold, silver, and everything else there is there. So it's yeah, I mean this is this is something that's going on in the background, and um, I think that uh, the Occupy um, Central thing in Hong Kong back in 2014 uh, failed to tip the balance. It did actually uh, cause the Shanghai Stock Exchange to uh, fall very, very sharply. Mm -hmm. um, but now we have the same thing being played again. It hasn't been finished. The um, Chinese have backed down on the, um, uh, the bill to, um, uh, uh, you know, take criminals back into back China, into China. Ex yeah. Ex ex the extradition Bill. Uh -huh. That has now been put on hold. So uh, the Chinese, I think, um, are trying to play this one very, very carefully. They, they want to be strong, but at the same time, they have to be a little pragmatic. So it's interesting. And of course, the whole Huawei thing is all part of this, too. Um, I mean, America's been running around telling all her, her allies, don't under any circumstances do business with Huawei. And, uh, you know, the excuse is quite simple that they say that uh, it gives them the ability to spy on you. Now, I don't know about you, Jay, but if I have a Huawei mobile phone and it works extremely well, um, I'm not sure that the Chinese are going to get any mileage out of spying on me. <laughs> but, you know, but, you know, once you sort of put the thought in everybody's head, of course, yeah. you can see what happens. It's mm -hmm. uh, very destructive of business. Yeah. And this is very important because uh, they've got a leading role in 5G. And, you know, so that's another aspect of it. America does not want to see Chinese technology overtake American technology. Right, right. 
You know, that's, that's right. It's all about uh, monetary. It's all about uh, uh, material power, uh, power, global power, and so forth, I guess, isn't it? And to what extent do you believe the, the Chinese are, in fact, building up their military capabilities? I think they, I mean, I'm sure they are. Um, I don't think they have any intention of uh, entering into a, a military conflict. Um, but you can see that it's rather like a game of chess, isn't it? You know, you, mm-hmm. you, you move your, your pieces, if you like, to protect um, a particular area. And uh, the particular area that we can see being protected is the South China Sea. Um, I, I think that uh, China would like to exploit that a lot, and I suspect that uh, their long-term planning is, first of all, secure the uh, shipping routes, um, uh, you know, as justifying uh, thereby the building of these um, uh, defense positions on the various reefs, um, which are claimed variously by uh, Japan and the Philippines and so on and so forth. Um, and I think the next stage will be they, they want to start um, exploring uh, for oil uh, in the South China Seas, and they will mm-hmm. claim um, uh, those new bits of territory, if you like, uh, mm-hmm. should be taken into account in any international treaty, carving up the the um, uh, the area, if you like, of exploration in the South China China Sea. So you can see, yes, they're pushing the boundary the whole time. Um, that is the way of it, um, and uh, I think. I think that, um, you know, America is very worried about uh, losing uh, its influence in the region. So, yes, I mean, you're bound to get a build-up of military capability, I think, um, as the background to that, because, uh, you know, we all know the basic um, rules of uh, not having war, you know. Um, basically, you, you talk uh, pleasantly but carry a very big stick. Right. Yeah, so... Um how, so the oil, how, how important is oil because of the petrodollar? I mean, mostly the United States wants to retain, I don't know if Trump understands this, but certainly the U.S. power has been able to ex- be expanded since we went off the gold standard by using this dollar that we could create out of nothing, the petrodollar, as it were. And so to what extent does the, it seems like wherever there's oil, it tends to be more military conflicts, more international conflicts. So you mentioned oil in the South Chinese Sea. You mentioned, uh, you know, Afghanistan and their minerals and so forth. I know there's some, uh, I, I guess, a lot of a lot of minerals there that haven't been exploited. Uh, what, what is China going to do, though? And I, I mean, how do you see this thing being resolved, Alistair? Well, I don't really see it be, seeing see it being resolved. Um, I'm afraid that the financial war is likely to escalate even further. And if I can pick up your point about uh, energy, energy is actually fundamental to everything. Sure. Um, and uh, uh, the the deal which basically Nixon and Kissinger uh, put together with uh, the Saudis back in 1973 was, um, you know, okay, we'll let you, um, you know, price oil. As you as you want, <laughs> yeah, we mm-hmm. can't stop you. We can't stop you doing that. Right. But the one thing we will insist is that you take payment in in in, in dollars. Right. And what that meant was that every oil payment uh, was lodged with a U.S. bank. Um, they called the money center banks in those days, mm-hmm. and uh, those banks that could then recycle those dollars uh, for other uses. And a lot of them, of course, went into 
pockets of the generals in the Argentine and all the rest of it. And that that was what led to the boom, if you like, the financing boom of South America and the subsequent collapse of South America. And a lot of those dollars also went into funding the um, uh, the tendency, the growing tendency for the U.S. budget to uh, run in deficit. It, that sort of that sort of helps explain now why the gold, the oil price went went bananas after that in in the uh, in the 1970s. As a matter of fact, it'd almost be to the benefit of a strong dollar to have a higher oil price because that would mean more dollars would be demanded around the world to buy oil from OPEC, right? Yes, that's that 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 is correct. I mean, it seems bizarre, but this is really at the heart of um, what has been described as the Triffin dilemma. Yeah. Um, you know, basically, you need rubbish policies to support uh, <laughs> yeah. the state the status of um, of an international currency, and uh, that, of course, is what America has been doing ever since um, uh, the Nixon shock in nineteen seventy one. So you don't see a resolution anytime soon with just about three minutes or so left to go here. What, how, how is this going to impact as this war continues to accelerate and I guess get worse? I mean, we can hope and pray there's no hot war. Or, I mean, there are hot waters. The U.S. is involved with yeah. dropping bombs everywhere, it seems. I mean, wherever they feel they want to change a regime or whatever. Trump seems yes. to be holding, pushing back a bit on that. Um, but... What's this mean for our markets? That's the bottom line, as far as we're concerned here, to a to a great extent. What's this mean? You mentioned China has been importing and building up its gold reserves. It's the largest gold producer in the world. Russia's joining as an ally of China. We're forcing the two together closer and closer. Iran, Turkey, possibly some of these countries. I mean, what's all this mean for? I guess what you're what you're really concerned about is an enormous amount of money printing that could result in a in a substantial amount of inflation, so that so that um, tangible assets might rise in value relative to a, a declining currency. Is that the bottom well, yeah, line? Yeah, uh, um, at the end of the day, but it's going to be a very rocky road before we get there. I mean, look at property, for example. Most property is financed by borrowings, yes. and if you have a if you have an inflationary collapse, the first thing that happens is that people can't afford to repay their mortgages, and uh, so property prices collapse. Now, there does come a point, obviously, where um, you know you should start picking up property and so on. But by far, the best asset under those circumstances is gold, sound money, uh, silver, perhaps. Uh, as well. And there is another thing that's happening, and that is that the millennials are buying into a new story, and that is um, uh, Bitcoin in particular. Right. Right. I don't know that Bitcoin is going to last forever. I would certainly not claim for that. But I think it could actually make um, uh, the next credit crisis quite a bit worse because it provides an escape route. And it's also educated an awful lot of people who otherwise wouldn't have been educated about the um, uh, the, the downside of, um, of fiat money, fiat yeah. currency, and why right. it is likely to collapse. So right. it's an interest. It's a very interesting and complex situation developing. But basically, go for sound money. Okay, and real quickly, with thirty seconds left here, uh, Alistair Silver, you indicated before we went on the show that you're going to be writing an article on silver. Uh, give us a, a, your quick thoughts on silver. Why is it not participating with gold? 
I, I think it's it, it, it's this is this is fascinating. Um, the article will be published on Thursday. Um, I, I don't think I got time to go into it, so I would ask your no. listeners to just <laughs> to go, go to goldmoney.com, gold money research insights, and you will find it there from uh, the afternoon U.S. time uh, on Thursday. But oh. basically, um, I think I have managed to uncover what has been happening in the silver market, and I can tell you that there is someone who has built up a huge position, long position, and uh, a lot of the big boys in the market who have gone short against this, effectively they're short against against this big position, um, don't okay. actually understand what's going to happen to them. All right, we'll have to leave it go with that. Thank you so much. It's uh, goldmoney.com, folks. You want to go there and catch Alistair's article. That's all the time we have this week. Next week, my main guest will be Jim Rickards, who will discuss his latest book titled The Aftermath. Peter Talman of Klondike Gold will be with me, and hopefully Michael Oliver will join me once again as well. Until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 